So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I am Rabbi Jonathan Case of Beth Shalom Synagogue here in Colombia. I am Imam Omar Shaheed of Masjid Salam of and, Columbia. And I am Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church here in Columbia also. All of us gathered today to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. We began a conversation last time around the symbols of our faith and how those symbols have been both a source of division and a reminder of our diversity. We spent a lot of time in our last podcast talking about the modesty requirement that is present in all three of our faiths. We talked about head coverings worn by faithful Jews and Muslims and spent a lot of time talking about the wearing of hijabs and burqas by Muslim women, but we realized there's a lot more to discuss, so we wanted to continue our conversation about the symbols that are operative in our three faiths. How are we, as people of faith, to think about, feel about, respond to fellow citizens who wear or display the symbols of other faiths. As we continue this conversation, we invite you to gather with us around the shared table that belongs to our father Abraham as we talk about the symbols of our faith. Welcome to Abraham's Table. And I hate to start, but I I will admit since I'm the one who does the editing, so I get all of the blame for the bad parts. I was listening to our last podcast, and it just hit me like a bolt. Okay, I'm Presbyterian, which is the Reformed arm of the Christian faith. And what I didn't even think about for some reason was when we were talking about the modesty requirement and the covering of bodies, I suddenly thought, why didn't I mention the long-standing tradition in the Western Roman Catholic Church of full-body coverings. So the religious women, the nuns who took orders, covered their hair, covered all but their faces, would not have been seen outside. Now, sometimes that breaks down now. There are women in who've taken Roman Catholic orders who are nuns, who serve, who would wear other things, but they I don't think they'd ever be seen in a halter top and short shorts. And then you've got the priests and the monks who also tend to wear long, full-body garb that looks much more Eastern than it does Western. And then it occurred to me, um, in here in Columbia, we have a just an, a stunningly beautiful Greek Orthodox church. And from time to time, I see the Father Michael out and about, and he has on a full black body cassock, I, I think that's what you call it, some sort of black mm. robe, ankles to wrists to high neck. He, you know, he has on a, a very ornate Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox cross, typically, but I've, and a long beard. So he looks in some ways much more Eastern, probably more Muslim and, and Jewish than the American Christian. So it's suddenly just occurred to me there's all this tradition of modesty dress that in most of the world symbolizes the Christian faith through the Eastern Orthodox branch, the Roman Catholic branch, and it was the Protestants who really kind of broke out of that to an extent. Now, 
in the Presbyterian church, when I preach, every time I preach, I wear a black robe, which is, you know, neck to almost ankles and all the way down to my wrists. It, but that was not so much because it wasn't women wearing robes when they started that. What that was about was it was supposed to be a plain black robe in the Presbyterian system for two reasons, really. One was to allude to the academic robe because Presbyterians were among those who said the life of the mind and the service of God is important. So Presbyterians have to go to seminary and learn Greek and Hebrew, or at least some passable version of that. So it was an academician's robe, but it was also intended not to have the hood and the colors of an academician's robe. It's supposed to be all black because that blacks out the person of the pastor. So you don't hmm. look at the pastor and say, gosh, how much did he spend on that robe? Or look at, <laughs> you know, she's gained a few pounds. I mean, the, <laughs> So <laughs> the idea was to black the person out and to focus on the message was the way I was raised. So anyway, I just thought, gosh, I, I didn't claim the modesty dress that goes along as a religious tradition in the Christian faith, as I probably should have before. So, so with the robe that you described that you wear, mm-hmm. is that connected with almost being invisible, being connected with as a representative of God? that you shouldn't be seen as an individual, you should be seen as something else? No, honestly, it probably functions more like a, a, a sign of a function or a sign of a, a, a position. So we just ordained a, a young fellow as an associate pastor here at church, and he would not wear a robe until he was ordained. So it's a, it's a sign of his office, a sign of that function. Mm-hmm. But it, it, in, And you'll see Presbyterians in colored robes or with all kinds of hoods and things, but the original intent, I think that as I read John Calvin, one of the Protestant ancestors, was that the intention was to to take the focus away from what somebody was wearing or how they looked in order to focus on the word. Mm. Interesting. You reminded me, which I did not think of until today, until you spoke, that on the high holidays for the Jewish community, which are Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Rosh Hashanah, the the New Year, that the Jewish community is asked to wear white. And it used to be that it wasn't just white, but it was a white robe. And the reason why it was a white robe, it has a specific name, was called a kittle, that it was supposed to be emblematic of death, that in those days we're supposed to consider our mortality. And so when we come to the services, the prayer services we offer on those days, we're supposed to be mindful of the fact that our life has an expiration date and be more conscious of that gift of life from God. Like a shroud. Well, actually, if you, to, yeah, that's exactly true. That to trace it back when we're buried, we are buried in that white kettle. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, in listening to both of you, it brings to mind in what the instructions were to Adam and his wife from Almighty God. He said, oh, Adam, I have it here. He says, we have bestowed raiment, clothing, clothes, upon you to cover your shame as well as to be an adornment to you. Hmm. But the... Rest, the raiment of the dress of righteousness. Uh, this is the best. So what, I, what I'm hearing is an effort to be modest 
I think that that stays alive, even with those of us who get before the people, stand up before the people to talk. That idea of being dressed in such a way that, that it takes the focus off of the individual and focuses more on your function or your role. Do you wear anything in particular yeah. when you lead prayers? Because Other I'm than a, a kippah? Because I'm American, I wear the kufi, the little hat. hat. And then I wear a, a suit coat. A suit coat. Yeah. But there are those who will wear, like if you're from Saudi Arabia, you have what is called a mishlak. You have a thobe. I've seen many of the Americans that we, they wear thobes. They have the head cover. They wear thobes. And, and uh, they and, have that kind of dress. And the thove, and, we, we talked about that last time. That's like a, a piece of material with a hat. No, that's for the men now. Right, for the yeah, men? Yeah, for the men. A kufi. Uh-huh, is a hat, like a brim, yeah. brimless hat. And then the, the thove would be the part that covers the body. Oh. And if you understand, uh, you, you do, you've seen it, it looked more like a outer garment. Okay, yes, I do. Similar to the, uh, the, the uh, cloak of... That you wear? Like the preaching robe. The preaching robe, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of them w- will identify like that. Because I'm an American, I wear my uh, suit coat, uh, suit, my little you, hat. You know, one thing that occurred to me that would be really helpful maybe to, to hear y'all talk about is so if, if I, as a Christian, come into your place of worship, what is respectful for me? What is What would be... Without being inauthentic, how is it that you could give a Christian guidance about how to be respectful in your own places of worship? Right. I think the same would be probably universal. But from the Jewish perspective, that you wouldn't go to a synagogue in the way that you wouldn't go to a church. So to wear revealing attire, to wear things that would be shabby and appropriate, perhaps they'd be smelly or whatever— those kinds of things would be inappropriate because if you're going to a place of worship, a place that is holy, a place where God, we go to find God. God is everywhere, but where we go to find God, you want to go in a, a suitable fashion. What about head coverings? It would be most respectful if yeah. if people would wear a red uh, a head covering, but it wouldn't be demanded. So if somebody said, "I'm not wearing it." Okay, well, you're not wearing it. It's, that's not respectful, but yeah. you know, you're welcome to to remain with us. Yeah, you remember when the, she's, uh, I think, Bhutto, uh, the president was of uh, Pakistan. Yeah, Bhutto. Mm-hmm. Bhutto. You remember she would have a scarf that mm-hmm. she would, just like you're wearing the scarf around your neck right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But when she stood up to speak, she would pull the scarf. Over the top of her head. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that, that that's uh, what most, when they are aware that they go into a place like the synagogue or the mosque, people will usually search out and find out of what is decent. Uh, we've had some people come in with, with some mini skirts almost, you know. Mm-hmm. But the sisters now have asked that they put on a little wrap around them, you know, mm-hmm. because, because you, you, those people who are wise enough or uh, have enough understanding, they check out to see what's required. Would you do the same if a man came in in shorts? The we, he wouldn't be respectful, but we do have some that for for a man he could wear shorts, and he could be exposed uh, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But for worship, that's not encouraged. Mm-hmm. Okay, just like 
or a, a sister could come to the mosque uh, without a head cover. I'm just using this mm-hmm. for an example. But if she's going to make prayer, she would cover her head. Like I was thinking, we were welcomed into the masjid when we, we did our traveling um, panel, the three of us. And so yes. we all came in, and you were gracious enough to allow us. And we almost walked in with our shoes. That was a place where I didn't rem- I didn't know I needed to take my shoes off before we went in. And then you all allowed us to sit in some chairs, but I didn't have anything on my head. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the Reverend says, it, it is welcomed, but it's not mandatory okay. for a person who's not Muslim. Mm. That issue with shoes is interesting to me, too. Back in the Bible, mm-hmm. Moses is told by God, Shana yes. which means take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Yes. Um, but the development of Jewish practice throughout the centuries is that it would be disrespectful to go barefoot in front of God, mm. but there's two strata or streams of, of Judaism that have come out of where people lived. Right. So those people that lived in the north, basically the uh, what we call Ashkenazic Jewry, it be, if you where if you go barefoot into a synagogue, they're going to say, "What's wrong with you?" Mm. and <laughs> put some shoes on. <laughs> um, but if you go to uh, the south to a Sephardic synagogue, they do take the shoes off, just like they do in your mosque mm-hmm. before they go into worship. Yes, and that's because of the. Prostration, the standing, when we pray, we go all the way down, we put our forehead and nose on the floor. So it, uh, shoes, you know, f- coming in sometimes even uh, you barefooted. You got gum on the bottom you, of your whatever, shoes. Whatever, you're barefooted and you got that, you know. So it's better to uh, just kind of leave your shoes outside, which we do. Now, if you're in the military, and you came in, you could pray in your shoes. Hmm. Wartime or something of that nature. Yeah. But uh, under good normal circumstances, you would put, you would take your shoes off hmm. in the mosque because there's a standing and a, and a prostration there that's involved. Hmm. Just like I was telling you when I went to Japan, uh, it wasn't religious, but they just said, take your shoes off. Hygienic purposes or reasons. And then the religion, but it was a cultural difference and shock to me when I, because I wasn't Muslim then, I wasn't used to taking uh, shoes off or anything like that. But it was a cultural shock, but I understood. When I understood, then I saw the wisdom behind it. So I assume to go into your plate, your prayer, uh, the room where we held, where y'all hold prayer, we took our shoes off. It's both religious and yes. hygienic. It'd yes. be both, yes. as well as cultural maybe? Mm, culture may fit in there, but it's more or less on a religious level mm-hmm. of prostration, putting your nose and forehead on the ground. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Why do you say nose and forehead? Well, those are the two that's going to touch. Ah. The, the nose and forehead, because your lips, you know, your nose will block that. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. For most of us, anyway. And I think Moses went into a swoon. I think Jesus also went into a, to a prostration of a swoon, too. I'm, I'm thinking that both of those are connected somewhere in it. Well, yeah, throughout the Bible, um, the idea of prostrating oneself occurs time and again yeah. in, in, in various places. But in Judaism, it's only the only remnant of that mm-hmm. takes place on 
the high holidays again, mm -hmm. when there's a certain prayer, when Jews will f fall on their face before God, prostrate mm -hmm. with before God, as saying a sacred prayer, basically saying, you're God, and I'm not. Right. You know, yeah. it's interesting. I, I think that the Protestant tradition there's, uh, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but there's some sense in which they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater because the sense in the Protestant arm of the Christian church was there was there was a lot of kneeling, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, which would be the closest we get to maybe prostration down in front. But, but the Protestants, the protesters said, we're not kneeling before anyone but God. And so kneeling in private prayer continued, but kneeling before the priest was we're not we don't kneel to you we don't need an intermediary intermediary we have Christ who gives us direct access so we're not going to prostrate ourselves and I think sometimes maybe we've that's a not to bow to the priest but the sense of bowing before God is something that can be very powerful yeah. has been very powerful yeah. for me in my own prayers and it could easily be misconstrued, right? Through the course of time, through, through centuries of mm -hmm. evolution, when the priest or rabbi or imam is standing at the front, and I don't, though I don't think this necessarily happens, but I'm just imagining it, they're standing at the front and everyone prostrates themselves, people will then kind of mm -hmm. put the leader of the prayer on a pedestal and saying, well, they're the representative. So I think human nature is such that we do do that. Well, that's a, there's a cure for that in Islam. Mm -hmm. The imam has to prostrate also. Mm -hmm. He doesn't face the people. He's, he's uh, in the direction that the people are pointed. So he's prostrating at the same time the people are prostrating. So we're not prostrating to the imam. Right. And the same thing happens within our faith okay. as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we just don't kneel. <laughs> except, except in our own. I mean, I do in my own prayers, but not... Not in church. Well, I don't want to, I, I, excuse me for cutting, cutting you off, but I don't want to get away from it. But I noticed when I was in Jerusalem and we were able to observe uh, looking down at the Whelan Wall, that was a, a bumping of the head, not a prostration, but a bumping of the head, right? Against the wall. Against the wall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can um, identify with that because I did that as well. But to be clear, it's not banging one's head against the wall. It's like <laughs> leaning against the wall to mm. feel the vibrations of the wall. Mm. Yeah. I did say bumping there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can just picture somebody coming away from the wall. Your head's red. Oh, you must have been at the wall. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, 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 the, so, so the dress, mm -hmm. the different um, cultural dresses that you find among the various bodies of uh, Muslims or Muslim communities and, and the discussion they have now about the hijab, the head covering in Iran and other things. I think sometimes there's a, too much focus on those areas uh, to try to say that Islam is oppressive to the woman. The, the Muslim woman that I've met that's very pious, very believing, even my wife, uh, they are not forced to put a head covering on. They do it out of respect and uh, and out of a veneration for 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 God and for their way in life. Uh, I don't think it's a would it would it be? Force. And if you disagree with me, I'd be interested. But so I would say, and it is seems very possible to me that in all of our traditions, that women 
may put on the symbols of faith or cover coverings, whether it's a hat or gloves or a, a whatever, from a place of reverence and gratitude and a, a wish to worship and be reverent. And also women have been made to do those things because it was a sign of subjugation. That that, that happens, it happens in the Christian tradition. It has happened in the Christian tradition. I assume that there are places where it has happened mm-hmm. in in the Jewish tradition and in the Muslim tradition, that that it's not either or, it it unfortunately is a both and. And that being modest out of gratitude and out of faith and out of reverence always yields a fruit of righteousness. Mm-hmm. But, but but wasn't it before the new styles came along that women did dress a certain way just out of culture? Say what you mean. Like during the 1950s and that? Yeah, the 50s. And uh, before that, they wore long dresses, and it wasn't a big thing. I look at some of the Western movies now, and that's when I, all I see is <laughs> the woman back during that time dressing as a sign of modesty. Uh, this this thing where in the West now where you compete with clothing to attract people, Islam, it was speaking to the woman first of all. The revelation was speaking to it. Said, "Lower your, uh, c- cover your bosom." Yeah. It wasn't cover your your face or your head. It was cover your your, your bosom, mm-hmm. and uh, th- that that was a, a sign so that you wouldn't be harassed. So that you wouldn't. Be. Now, when I, when I look at uh, some of the work settings, it's almost tough. People are working with each other, staying with each other all the time. It's it's tough. Well, as a man, to keep his eyes on. <laughs> just look at the woman or look at her face when when, when you have the, the, the... So much else to look at? Well, what can you say? <laughs> I, you said it. I didn't <laughs> Well, and I, I guess, see, I do think, I, I do think it's a, it is important um, to dress in such a way that it's not a distraction. And also, uh, women are not fully responsible. That, you know, That's a big thing. It, yeah, so I would tell you, even as a Protestant pastor, when I was young, I'm old now, so nobody says this to me, I, I remember being just stunned. I would have on a robe, and because I had a limited budget, I had just a few blouses that had sort of high collars. And I had folks come out the back and say, do you have anything on under that robe? <laughs> and I thought, mm. you know, that's not my responsibility, Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm being as reverent as my budget will allow. That's your responsibility. Yeah. yeah. You remind me of the woman that was accosted and raped. And the first question is asked is, what was she wearing? Right. You know, mm. which, which just comes out of a patriarchal point of view, which is... The women are responsible is, to keep the men out of trouble. Which is awful. And obviously, the question that then comes out of that is, is, that, is why is this dress... Important, and there are many different reasons for it. Number one mm-hmm. would be not not an order, but one would be: is it modesty? Mm-hmm. Is it affiliation? It'd be another one. In other words, you're dressed in a certain way so that you can see you're part of this team. You know, you you come from this certain area. You have this religion, this faith. And the third possibility is: do you dress this way so that others will perceive you in a certain way? Yeah. Um, so, so what you radiate what you're showing, how people see it. Um, there are all different aspects to the way that we dress and the modalities of dress that our religions 
enforced. Yeah. The, I mentioned that last week when we were together, the Hasidim, if you come from this town in Lithuania, you dress this way. To this day, they do well. Yeah. If you come to, from this town in Hungary, you dress this way, and they still will in certain pockets. But that's very limited. And why do they do that? They do that because they want to preserve what their ancestors did, mm. like the way that I phrased it before. They want to know that they're part of the same the same team and that other people keep away from them. They're, they're, they want to be very cloistered in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I was observing some parts of Africa where the woman doesn't have a... A top on at all. Yeah. Now, for Islam, she would have to have a top. Mm-hmm. If you bring people into the international community, I don't think the nudist colonies <laughs> would be the way that people normally would go about things. So I think that uh, there's a certain amount of respect there also that the woman, uh, uh, she is more attractive than men. I guess men would be attractive to women, but at the same time, well, but I think there's a certain amount of but there's also that now, so when you say that, so that drives me to think about a place in the Christian tradition where I think we've got to take responsibility, and that is in the way that in, in the Americas, how the Christian missionaries came, and the first sign of conversion was to make the Native Americans Native American. mm-hmm. dress in Western dress, mm-hmm. because that was considered to be respectful, right? Yes. So with no res- without any respect to the traditions of the Native Americans, yes, they said, this is what has to happen. And that's where the dress becomes a form of oppression. So, Well, that's, that's the point that the Quran addresses when it speaks to Adam and his wife. It says, uh, dress has been revealed to cover your shame, mm-hmm. the, the, or to be an enhancement. Mm-hmm. But the best dress is to be God-conscious. To be God-conscious, yes. yeah. And in the Genesis stories that Jonathan and I share, so Adam and Eve hide, and when God says, why are you hiding? Adam says, I hid because I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And God says, who told you you were naked? And then at the end, this is Genesis chapter 3, so God takes and creates clothing. The Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Right. Mm-hmm. Which not only is the element of hiding one's shame, as Marquardt rightly said, but also there's the other lesson in there, which I think demands attention, is that God made them close. And we we're talking a little bit earlier before we begin the podcast about the attributes of God, mm-hmm. which God making close to them is an indication that what we're supposed to do in our lives mm-hmm. is clothe the naked. Close and naked. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And the worst nakedness is the heart or the conscience. You can have on the best clothing, but if your consciousness and your mind is not respectful, you can be a prostitute, best dressed prostitute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can be. Or, or you could be a person that's not covered and still have a beautiful mind. Right. You know. So I, I, I said that to say, can I throw in, you can also be the best-dressed gigolo? <laughs> yep. that'll, that'll give us balance. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I remember growing up in the Christian church, we mentioned this last week, the, the, the elderly woman and my mothers and others, 
they, 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 they dressed a certain way and they covered their head. They wore a cover. Mm-hmm. They, they wore a covering over their head. Mm-hmm. That was going to church. And I also lived long enough to see many skirts and stuff come in. One, one, one person told her, I'm going to use this as a little tell. It was mm-hmm. in a church. It was a church setting. said, uh, if, if the flower girls drop the flower, don't pick them up. <laughs> 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 the skirts are too short. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a contemporary Christian song now. It's probably 20 years old. But there's a fellow who sang a song about what about the change. And he made, not made fun of, but pointed out how Christians have this tendency to wear Christian symbols everywhere. So they'll have, you know, crosses around their necks, and they'll have little fish on their cars, and they'll have, and those people are the ones who are cutting you off in traffic. And um, so he, he was talking about, you know, you got your fish, you're carrying your Bible, you got your fish on your car, but where, what about the change? What yes. about the change in your own heart? And there's an old time, maybe y'all have an equivalent, the old joke about the fellows in the Bible study, the old men would come together and they, he had accountability, a prayer partner, and they were talking. He said, you know, I'm really struggling. I realized the other day that I just drive too fast and there's a speed limit. And I see that speed limit. I know what it is. And I still break it. And and I was driving down the road the other day and I realized I've got this the church sticker on the back of my car. And I, I thought, you know, somebody's going to look at me and say, I'm a real bad. I said, well, let's pray about that for a week. So they came back the next week. He said, yeah, I've been really praying about this. What did you decide to do? And the guy said, I decided to take the sticker off my car. Right. <laughs> right. That's, but that is a big thing, isn't it? Because when we, when we wear these emblems of faith, we become emissaries of our faith, and people will see us, yeah. and they will say, oh, that's what Jews do. That's what Muslims, that's what Christians do. And we do have a responsibility yeah. when we go out into the public because we are all emissaries of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was just having a conversation yesterday with one of the members of the congregation who the millennials now are facing an internal question of whether they need to be open or not. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said to me that because of the rampant rise in anti-Semitism, there's a lot of Jewish people that refuse to be open about who they are in their identity. They don't want to wear a star. They don't want to cover their head with, with something that's a discernible Jewish uh, um, idea. And that really struck me. Almost. Yes, I told, you, I told you last week that our leader, we got a mercy on his soul, he passed. I'm talking about our social leader, our leader in America, Imam W.D. Muhammad. When 911 happened, he told our community of sisters to dress down, mm-hmm. dress down. And there were those who, some outside of our community, who said, no, we're not going to give in to this, this fear. But there were sisters who were traveling in the bigger cities, riding the subways. They were driving their cars and other things. He, he, he was encouraging them. Uh, at this time, just dress down somewhat. Wear mm-hmm. baggy pants or whatever, and uh, don't 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 present yourself as the the typical Middle Eastern, you know, because these people are off the chain now. And like we said before, it was a Sikh that was uh, the first person that was they said was killed after nine eleven. Yeah, but yeah. he was he was not Muslim. He was a Sikh. Had a dress that they could not identify. Right. 
We all, what other, are there any other symbols we want to try and take on today? If y'all, I, I laughingly said last time, if y'all got cross questions, I don't know that I can answer them, but I'll give it a shot. Well, I guess from my background, I kind of understand. So I'm, I'm not, <laughs> maybe you want to express it to, to someone in the audience. I'm. Well, I, you know, one of the things I, I, when we talked about being emblematic, I think in the Christian tradition, the, the cross is at the center, it's at the center of our sanctuaries it's it is jewelry it's Mm -hmm. um it is the center symbol you know crosses jesus wasn't the first person killed on a cross crosses have existed long before christianity started so the cross itself was not originally necessarily a christian symbol but the fact that that was the form by which jesus was executed then put it at the center of the christian tradition but it's been used in a lot of different ways. So it is intended to be a reminder of God's great love, willing to sacrifice, willing to endure for us. But what has often happened is then it's been gilded and become a sign of domination. That's what Constantine did. So instead of it being a sign of humility, a sign of suffering, a sign of solidarity, it became uh, the banner under which his armies killed all the Muslims that they could, the Crusaders did the same. So the cross was a form of torture and a race to the bottom of the power chain, but we, over time, have often used it in the reverse. The only other thing I I thought is there are different forms of crosses um, that might be worth to say. One is, maybe we've said this before, in the Roman Catholic tradition, most of the time, if you come into a Roman Catholic church, you'll see what's called a crucifix, which is the cross with an image of the body of Christ crucified Mm -hmm. on it. And again, being Presbyterian in the Reformation, what happened was folks said, we're not, we are claiming resurrection. We claim the deliverance from sin and deliverance from death. So the cross in most Protestant churches is a simple cross without the person of Christ on Mm -hmm. it, because the, the focus is on the resurrected Christ as opposed to the suffering and the death. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I wonder about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of different forms of crosses. Um, in our sanctuary, we have what's called a, at the front now a Celtic cross, which is, I'm, I don't know that anybody really knows where that came from, but it's a, a, a cross without the form of Christ on it. But there's a what's called a nimbus, a circle behind it. And there are all kinds of theories about where that showed up. Most folks would say it first showed up in Ireland and Scotland, and it might have been as simple as a helpful brace to the arms of the cross, <laughs> you know, sort of an architectural piece. Some people have said, no, it's a, it's a sign of the halo of Christ or the eternity of God. Some folks said, no, it's, it's a way in which the early Christians took on sort of the sun god and incorporated huh. that circle into the cross. Hmm. The swastika has some connections to the cross, as does you know, the, the KKK. The, they have taken that symbol and used it for particular ways in their own particular twisted logic as well. Interesting, they broke it. They yeah. broke the cross. Mm-hmm. They did? I thought they burned it. <laughs> they did both. Yeah. Bro- yeah. Broke it and burned it. They did both. I've seen crosses where that looks almost like the letter T, like mm-hmm. a capital T, and other ones tell. where they have something that is slanted in yes. the center. 
I don't know about well, slander and sinner. The 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 tau, the Greek letter T, mm-hmm. that that is a, a form of a cross. I want to say that that it's often called an Egyptian cross, but I don't remember why. But there are lots of forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say from an emotional point of view, somebody who is not Christian, the cross is a very compelling, painful symbol to to look at. It's very emotionally laden. It, it and for us as well. Not only non-Christians, it should be emotionally laden as a, as a form of uh, remembering what kind of God it is that we suffer, a God that is not separate from us, a God that is not other than our suffering, a God who came to earth, who knows what it is to be hungry, to be in pain, to suffer, to die, that that's the kind of God that created all that is, is in, in my frame what that cross should invoke humility and gratitude, not an attempt to force it down somebody else's throat or a domination. That'd be the opposite. That's what the Roman centurions did. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, not bang somebody over the head with it. (laughs) Right. What else? Is it time for us to stop this time? Well, unless we want to take up all the other items that we missed and go on for another couple of hours, we could... All right. We'll figure out what to do next. Okay. There is a lot to talk about, much to learn. Thank you for joining us at Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love produced by us, Imam Omar Shahid, Rabbi Jonathan Case, and Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore with musical gifts shared with us by Kyle Lovett from his piece, Shofar Worship, which you can find on Spotify. We hope you've enjoyed our conversations and we'll share them with your friends, your family. And please remember always, we'd love to hear from you. Communicate with us via email, abrahamstablesc at gmail.com from Columbia, South Carolina. And until we meet again, we wish you God's peace. Assalamu alaikum. God's peace be on all of us. And Shalom Aleichem, may peace infuse us all with hope.